I could do that a while longer. How about you? It's pretty great. Go to Romans chapter 11, if you would, please, if you have your Bible with you. If you don't own a Bible, there's free Bibles in the back. I'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word, so pick one up on your way out. They're they're there for you for that reason. Or perhaps you'd like a used one. There's a fine selection of used ones in the lost and found area. (laughs) Apparently, they're not interested in them, so you could, no, joking. Read the name first. Make sure you're not taking your friend's Bible. Okay, so Romans chapter 11, we're going to go there in just a minute. Um, Ladies, this is just for your attention. Inside your bulletin this morning is a little brown insert, and it speaks to an event that's designed just for you on Monday night, September 10th. Uh, There's this event, it's kind of like a connection dinner for you, especially if you're new and you feel like you're not getting to know the other women in the church, it'd be a great opportunity for you to be there, but also a chance to learn about the studies for the fall. So mark that down, put it in your calendar, and there's uh, tickets being sold out in the atrium after the service. You can see somebody at the table out there to pick it up. So Romans chapter 11, and I'm really very excited about what we're going to look at this morning. There's no message in the Bible that is clearer than what we're about to talk about this morning. Here's what's incredibly clear. God can be trusted. Amen? God can be trusted. And Scripture is replete with examples of that. And I hope you leave here this morning greatly encouraged by what you're about to look at. Because by the very definition, His Word is absolutely trustworthy. God says, I give you my word. You happen to hold it in written form in your hands, but God said, it's my word. I give you my word, meaning whatever he says is true. Whatever he promises comes to pass. That can be said of no one else in your life. I could say to you right now, the Detroit Lions are going to have a great season this fall, but you're not so sure you would believe it, right? You just go by past history. So we would say, well, I hear promises all the time. I hear things that are not trustworthy. We live in a world of untrustworthiness. It's very hard for us to really process that God can absolutely be trusted. So we find examples in Scripture to encourage our hearts about this very truth. Look with me on the screen at four of them, Psalm 31.5. He's called the God of truth. What about this one in 1 Kings chapter 8? Not one word has failed of all his good promises. That's remarkable. Not one word has failed. Or what about this, 2 Timothy 2? Even when we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Or this one that we've looked at over the years, Numbers chapter 23, talking about God constantly in his nature and character. Here's a reality that's declared. God cannot lie. He is not a man that he should lie. So his promises never fail because everything he says is truth. Now this morning in particular, as we get into Romans chapter 11, we're going to be looking at the reality in which Paul has to defend that reality. He has to defend that God is always truth as he leans into talking about the nation of Israel. And it looks like they've abandoned the things of God when they abandoned Jesus. So Paul has to say, well, even though it looks like things are not going the way they should, there is a reality that God is still being faithful. His promises never fail. So here's the last example for you this morning from Joshua chapter 23. Joshua is talking to the nation of Israel and reminding them this, you know in all your hearts and in all your souls 
that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. Perhaps no section of Scripture is more complete with expressing the trustworthiness of God than Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 10, and Romans chapter 11. Paul has a problem. As the author of Romans, he has a difficulty. He's talking about the God who is faithful. He's talking about Jesus rescuing, but he lives among a nation of people, his own social circle, who have said, no, that's not the way we're going. It looks like God's word has failed. So Paul approaches this issue from two distinct positions. And in chapter 9, he defended the position that God actually pre-selected, God pre-chose, God selected them through predestination. And then in chapter 10, he dealt with the failure to respond by simply saying, they've got an obstinate heart. They've got a very hard heart. And this brings about a serious tension. It looks like their stubbornness has defeated God's purposes. So there's this overarching principle that we've been working with in the last couple weeks, and the principle is this. God's grace is greater. God's grace is more persistent than an obstinate heart. God's grace is greater than a hard heart. You got somebody in your life this morning that's got a hard heart towards the things of God? God's heart towards those individuals is more persistent than their obstinate heart. And that principle is extraordinarily important when it comes to the promises of God towards you and towards these ancient people. And here's why it matters. If God doesn't keep his word towards Israel, why should you believe he's going to keep it toward you? Why should you think that his word is true if he actually abandons those people? Because God made some very specific promises to Israel. Some of them were conditional based on their performance, but the big ones, the huge ones, they were unconditional, grounded solely in God's integrity. And if he were to fail in those, he would be what he cannot be, a liar, and God can't lie. So if God were through with that nation, his word would be false. So if you're new to the Bible, let me give you a brief overview of what we're going to be talking about in Romans chapter 11. God made some really big promises that he was going to use the nation of Israel in mighty ways. Here's an example of the first one. Genesis 12, verse 2, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It wasn't just about Israel. It was about all the nations, all the families of this planet. So after Abraham enters the promised land, God enters into another unconditional covenant with them. Genesis chapter 13. The Lord said to Abram, now lift your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. Those are really distinct parts of an unconditional promise that God made, a covenant sworn by God, affirmed by God. He made an unbreakable oath with himself, by himself, to keep his promises. So Israel has been and will be preserved even in times of trauma 
I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about it before, but there is only one nation on the face of this earth that has ever been as ancient as Israel, has gone out of existence, and has come back again. The ancient Romans, gone. The ancient Greeks, gone. The ancient Persians, gone. When a nation goes out of existence, it doesn't come back, yet God brought them roaring back in 1948 as an independent state recognized by the rest of the world. See, God's faithfulness depends on his continued preservation of Israel, yet he promises also to bless the entire earth, all the families of the earth through Abraham's offspring. And the fulfillment of that came when Jesus, God the, man, God the Son, became Jesus the man, and the Messiah arrived. However, if anything is evident from history, it's that Israel rejected the Messiah and, and threw him aside and, and rejected the gospel. And Scripture shows us that as a result, God had to set his ancient people aside temporarily. This is the problem Paul is dealing with when he writes the book of Romans. Now, how long does that last, Mark? Well, I'm giving away the end of the story, but if you have your Bible open, just let your eyes drift down the page to verse 25. We're told that it will come to an end. It will happen until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. What does that mean? Until all those who are not Jewish are saved who are believers in Jesus. And at that time, according to verse 26, with absolute certainty, all of Israel will be saved because God promised it. Now, hear this. Israel's rejection of Jesus didn't catch God by surprise. In fact, it served as a central part of his plan. Now, that's an issue, but it's not the issue that you're facing today. Those are all issues, but it's not the issue. Here's the issue. You, New Hope, would never place your trust in a God who's not trustworthy. You would never place your hope in a God who wouldn't keep his promises and wasn't faithful. So Paul's going to burn some valuable energy here. Despite things looking like they're not going the way they're supposed to go, you can still trust God this morning. You can still believe that he's trustworthy. So go forward with me into Romans chapter 11, verse 1. This is what Paul says. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, I'm not just a Jew. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm, I'm from one of the most revered tribes of all of Israel. And he says, I have pedigree. Look with me on the screen at Philippians chapter 3. If anyone has else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. And he doesn't mean a Pharisee in the bad way. He means I'm a specialized lawyer. I know the law. So I know my people and I know what I'm talking about. So this word rejected that he just used is really important as it applies to us this morning. God has not apatheo, his people has he. God has not rejected. Don't look for this word in your notes. It's only on the screen. What does this rejected word mean? It means to push something away. Well, you can't push something away unless you held it in the first place. You can't reject it unless it's already there. Paul's not asking if God refused to receive these people. He's saying whether or not he's thrown away that which he already has. Now, if you know God's character... 
And if you know the nature of the God of the Bible, you know there's only one answer to that question. No way. God would never do that. God won't reject those who are his own. So he says, may it never be. It's impossible. God cannot renege on his promises despite the reality that they're obstinate and hard-hearted. God says, I know how to deal with that. Look with me on the screen at Psalms chapter 89. If they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will visit their transgressions with a rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie. Now, in light of that reality, Paul insists that this setting aside of Israel, it's, it's only partial. And he does so by pointing to himself as evidence. He says, hey, I'm a Jew and I'm a believer. I, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. And I came to Jesus. See, the reality is the vast majority of the early Christians were Jewish. It was because so many Jews were becoming Christians and turned to Jesus that Paul was trying to destroy the church He was the extreme zealot trying to take out all the Christians. And if he came to faith in Jesus, the gospel has the power to save anyone. Amen? If you believe the gospel has the power to save anyone, would you say amen? Amen. It does. You got somebody in your life who is anti-God or maybe anti-Jesus? Paul says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. If Paul can be saved, anyone can be saved. So if God rejected the entire nation, Paul could not possibly claim right standing before God, and he would hardly devote his life to a gospel that he wouldn't be even included in. So verse 2, part A, says this, God has not rejected his people. How do you know, Paul? Because he foreknew them. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. The the word foreknew is really important here. That must mean that the setting aside is only partial. Remember that word rejected that we just talked about a minute ago? It, It meant to push something away that you already hold. Paul's saying he hasn't done that. He hasn't pushed him away. It's not that God never received his people. He's never going to cast away those whom he foreknew. So he's not referring to an individual person here then. He's talking about this nation, this corporate body. Obviously, there's individual Jews who died without Jesus. There's individual Asians who died, individual Russians who died, individual South Americans who died, individual Chinese and North Americans who died without Jesus, but Paul's talking about the corporate body. So the people mentioned in verse 2 here are the disobedient, the obstinate nation of Israel. And it all hinges on this word foreknew. And this word foreknew is really important because it applies to you this morning. God foreknew you. If you're a believer in Jesus, he foreknew that you would become a believer in Jesus. 
Let's see how this word foreknew is used in three examples this morning, God's foreknowing things. The first one comes from Peter, standing on the steps of the temple in Jerusalem, and he's talking to a big gathering of Jewish people who are listening to him talk about the reality of what they're seeing in front of them, that many people are beginning to confess Christ and they can't make sense of it. Acts 2.23 is where Peter picks up. This man delivered up, he's talking about Jesus, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Do you notice? God's predetermined plan and his foreknowledge are equated. They're put together as the same thing. For God to foreknow something is for God to predetermine something. How does that apply to you? 1 Peter 1.12, we, church, we believers in Jesus Christ, we who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Okay, let's take this word foreknow and then apply it to Israel. Did you know that Israel is the only nation in the history of mankind to be foreknown by God. He chose in advance, watch this, Deuteronomy 7, 6, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. So Paul's arguing one of the greatest evidences that God has not rejected Israel are the people whom he has already preserved. And Paul says, I'm one of them, and there's a whole lot more. Verse 2, part B, or do you not know what the Scriptures say in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Verse 3, Lord, they have killed your prophets, and they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. Now, instead of dealing in abstracts and just saying to you, God's trustworthy, you can depend on him. He actually goes to facts. He goes to history, and he leans back into the story of Elijah. And you remember what happened with Elijah? One of the greatest prophets of the Bible. But there's a death warrant on his life. Somebody puts his picture in the post office as a wanted man, and Queen Jezebel says, I'm going to kill this guy within 24 hours. I want my hunt men to go out and find him. And so he runs for 40 days. Forty days, he goes into the wilderness. He finds the deepest, darkest cave he can go and crawl into. And when he arrives there, God shows up and says, Elijah, what are you doing? Why are you here? Elijah's argument reflects the despondency he has because he doesn't really know the story behind the story. And so he says, they're hunting me and they want to kill me. I'm the last believer left on the face of this earth. And God, they're hunting for me to exterminate me if only he had known the rest of the story. If only he had known the whole story and realized that God was working behind the scenes, that there was something going on behind him, that God could be trusted so Paul says, look, look at God's response to Elijah, verse 4. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In other words, God says to Elijah, Elijah, I'm doing a work you know nothing about. I'm doing things right now that you can't even see, even though it looks like it's messed up to you. There's something more going on here. So when Paul uses this phrase, divine response, the Greek language actually speaks of being an oracle or a revelation of God, something that God reveals. 
Let's translate that over to the arrival of Jesus. God the Son, Son condescends and becomes Jesus the man to be on planet Earth with us. And from a human viewpoint, we look at it and think, man, it looks like all those people rejected him and they crucified him, threw away the gospel and had no interest in what he was doing. But hear this, there was already a godly preservation going on. There was already a remnant before Jesus was even born. Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary, Joseph, Simeon, Anna. What, what about all of the shepherds who showed up to worship the baby Jesus? And during his earthly ministry, while he's here walking the planet, it appears that hundreds and thousands of individuals turned to Jesus, and by Acts chapter 2, instantly 3,000 people are added to the church, and within a couple more chapters, you find 5,000 more are added, and by you get time you get to chapter 4, there's 20,000 people who are Jewish Christians believing in Jesus. Translate this back to Elijah. See, Elijah's assessment of the situation is not accurate. He's thinking that God doesn't have his back. I'm alone. I'm left. And Paul's realizing this is the way people think when they look at the Jewish nation rejecting Jesus. So he's got these five beautiful words that he begins verse 5 with. In the same way, and I love that statement because he's essentially saying God's the same today as he was yesterday. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. In the same way there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. So Paul speaks of a remnant in the context as a symbol of hope. There's these individuals who do believe, and by the time Paul wrote the book of Romans, there's hundreds of thousands of Christians throughout the Roman Empire, many of them Jewish Christians. So do you notice how he uses the word remnant here? He says the remnant is saved by grace, not by works, according to God's gracious choice. So I've asked the tech team to put a slide up that's going to help you this morning. This word's gracious choice, in the Greek language, it actually means election by grace. In other words, God foreknew you. God foreknew, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that you would be saved by the grace of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? God foreknew that. So by God's gracious choice, also these Jewish Christians, they're not elected by their good works. They're not elected by your worthiness. You were not elected that way. But according to God's gracious choice, His sovereign design, before the foundation of the world, he foreknew you. Look with me on the screen, 2 Timothy 1.9. God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So he's got this beautiful ending. I know it seems like it's gone really fast. It has. But verse 6 is just incredibly beautiful. But if it's by grace, it's no longer by works. If it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. No longer by works doesn't mean it once was by works. That's not what he's saying. Don't, don't mistake that. He's not saying, well, it used to be by works, and now it's not. 
He's saying once you come to understand that salvation is by grace, grace makes it obvious that works could have never done it. Works could never save you. If works have any place at all, there's no point in even talking about grace. Why bother? If works are a factor, you no longer have grace. The two can't go together. So when it comes to God's amazing grace, no message of the Bible is clearer than this. God can be trusted, New Hope. God can be trusted. His word is solid. So even though Paul's nation is spiritually absent from a relationship with the Father, don't think that the Father isn't standing on the porch like we talked about last week. Don't think that the Father isn't looking for that prodigal son. I'm looking in the distance. I think I see a shell of a man coming towards me. Don't think that the Father isn't extending grace the whole time, waiting, waiting, waiting. Because Scripture says all of Israel will be saved one day. Whatever he says is true, whatever he promises comes to pass. How can you put a handle on that this morning and carry it out the door with you? How does this apply to you directly when you leave the auditorium today? And the sounds of worship are distant memory, and and the sounds of these verses grow faint. How can you put a handle on this? Well, let's start here. What about all the promises God made to you to forgive you? Are, are you living with the haunting of your past failure and thinking, man, that sin, it's weighed me down so much that I'm just never going to amount to anything. God can't possibly use me. But God says, I've separated your sin as far as the east is from the west, and I remember your sin no more. Do you believe God's word? When we say God's word can be trusted, that's God's word. He says, I forgive you. End of story. It's not an issue with me. We just have a really hard time forgiving ourselves. Or, or what about when God says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. But when you wake up in the morning and you don't have the feeling like God's right there with you and you feel like your world is crumbling and things are falling apart, Our feelings betray us in those moments. And that's when we have to lean back into God's Word. And that's why Scripture says, hide God's Word in your heart, that you might remember it in those times when you're feeling that way, because your feelings will betray you. See, if God does not keep His Word, His faithfulness is not great, and He cannot be trusted, and therefore we would have no hope. So I I close with a chapter from a book that Lori and I have been working through. It's just a little excerpt. Actually, it's a paragraph. And we've been working through this book called Married and Still Loving It. It's primarily written to people who've been married more than 20 years. And Gary Chapman wrote it. And as Gary went around the nation, he was interviewing individuals who are kind of high-profile couples about their walk with God. And the couple I want to read the paragraph from right now is uh, Johnny Erickson Tata and her, her husband, Ken, Ken Tata. Uh, Many of you know that Johnny severed her spinal cord when she was like 18 years of age. And she and Ken have been married more than 25 years. And she's a paraplegic. And so she's highly dependent upon her husband to prepare her. And every breath she takes is, is a challenge. It's a piece of work for her. And Ken has to help her with everything she does throughout the day, including preparation of food. So you can imagine what her anxiety is like. What will happen in my future if I lose my husband? 
So Gary Chapman asked her this simple question. Johnny, we found that many long married couples struggle with anxiety, especially about what's ahead. You've had more than enough health reasons to feel anxious, and now you're taking needed medication that induce anxiety. How do you and Ken deal with anxiety when it arises? This is Johnny's response. Funny you should ask, this past Sunday was communion, and as I contemplated sin that needed to be confessed in my life, the one that jumped right to my mind is the fear of the future came right out in front. I wonder if I can handle much more physical pain. What will I do if Ken Tata dies before me? If I should become bedridden, will I be able to gracefully accept it? Mine is a constant fight to stay content right here, right now, and quit worrying about it. Tomorrow, or whether or not my corset will be digging into me, those things I struggle with, the simple struggles of life, my constant inspiration is the prophet Samuel, who after he raised his memorial stone said, thus far the Lord has helped us. He has met my every need more than abundantly, and I have absolutely no reason to think, and she puts this in parentheses, and this is where the fight kicks in, and I have absolutely no reason to think that he will fail me in the future because God's faithful. And how quickly we forget that he met our needs in the past. And so when the troubles rise, we quickly lean into our feelings instead of remembering that God can be trusted new hope no matter what. So I'm, I'm going to let you go by praying for you, but before I let you go, you're going to do something with me. There's something that happens in the soul when we declare that God is trustworthy. So Michael's going to take us through a closing song that actually declares God is worthy of your trust because he's great, isn't he, church? He's great and worthy of it. So here's how I'm going to pray right now. There's a good chance that many of you are tired, physically tired. You've had a long week. You've dealt with a lot of issues, and perhaps the emotional has played into the physical, and it's worn you down. And you're wondering if what I'm saying is actually true. I'm going to pray for you right now that God would sing through you and bring glory and praise and honor to himself even when you feel weak, and especially tomorrow when you wake up. Pray with me. Father, we begin by declaring that you are great and your faithfulness is great. So where we feel weak right now, Father, I pray that you fill our lungs with oxygen. Use our vocal cords to declare the reality of what we know to be true in our heart, even when we don't feel it. Great is your faithfulness. And we declare that because your word declares it and you've proven it time and time again, even though we come in here this morning many times forgetting what you just did for us yesterday. Remind us, God, as we pick up the day tomorrow and as we take on this afternoon, you are worthy of all our praise. Don't let us be like Elijah. We don't want to be despairing in a cave thinking we're the only ones left. 
Rather, God, make us aware constantly that you're working behind the scene. You're up to things that we cannot begin to imagine. Let us be warriors like Paul. To say, we believe you are worthy of all our praise. You're worthy, Father. So we declare this in the name of the one who made us worthy before you, the Lord Jesus Christ, before whose presence we will stand one day. God, it's in his name we pray. Amen.